You must remember this A kiss is still a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by It is Wiki Game Guide's Comcast number 15 this time. I am Simon Wu. And I'm Alex Miller. And we're going to get started right now with the community callback segment, as we always do. So, from our last podcast, number 14, John Tarr has weighed in with his opinion. He is responding to the next consoles coming with two controllers. I believe one of our listeners had suggested that, and he says... Not a chance in hell. The margins on accessories for both the console manufacturer and the retailer are way too big. When consoles first launch, they are sold at a price where the manufacturer is actually losing money on every purchase, and accessories help make up for that loss in a big way. Also, I think that was the first Casablanca reference I've ever heard in a video game podcast. Well done. Um, thank you, John. We do try and have a bit of culture here on the podcast. Papers, please. Right. And in response to that um, argument for two controllers, I believe, the actual person who suggested it responded. Yeah, actually, uh, yeah, Darth Skeletor responded saying, uh, then it might just be the special edition consoles. All special edition 360s since the Modern Warfare 2 and Final Fantasy 13 Elites have had two controllers. And I would definitely would uh, actually agree with, with both uh, commenters here, John and Skeletor. It's, there's no way getting around it, Simon. He makes a very good point that, as we always say, consoles are lost leaders. And other than just making it up on the software side, a big, big portion of uh, where their income is coming from are from these accessories. Yeah, so I think special editions are, well... A special case, right? Because what they are is um, it's a whole product that's branded and looks very different. And so, obviously, you've got these two editions that are painted or just looked plated in a very unique way. And there's no way you're going to get another one of those. It makes sense that they're going to comp you another one, but it's at it's going to cost a hundred dollars more. And to be honest with you, I often I do absorb that cost because we've discussed before I prefer special editions because in a couple years time when it comes time to sell it people are going to want that that's going to be unique that's going to be a unique item and so definitely a good thing to have yep so next we have Soulfluxion weighing in as he so often does saying great podcast I have to admit comparing upgrading my PC to buying a console doesn't work for everyone as I can only say what I and my situation care about. For me, buying a console may be a necessity because of all the console exclusives. Otherwise, I wouldn't even consider it. So for me, the comparison works because I actually like getting technical. Smiley face. Yeah, so comparing upgrading the PC to buying a console, yeah, it doesn't work for everyone because upgrading a PC, that's a very, very niche thing, right? Most people consider upgrading a PC as, okay, I hand my next, my current one down to like a family member who doesn't care as much, and I go out and get a new one. Whereas buying a console is the same thing. 
upgrading like hardware, like graphics, cards, processors, that sort of thing, that's a very small percentage of the population. And now, for the first time, we actually had a couple of comments on N4G. So we actually have been posting there for quite some time now. And if you're joining us from N4G, uh, welcome. Please continue to listen in from there. We'll keep posting. And uh, says, yeah, I like it. Even though when I played it at a Nintendo special event, I was not blown away. I think developers will find some interesting ways to utilize the dual screens. Plus... HD Nintendo first-party games, and this was in response to our topic that we spent pretty much all of last week talking about, which was um, everything about the Wii U, right? Total analysis of the Wii U price, uh, hardware, software, sales, marketing, so on and so forth. And so, interesting ways to utilize the dual screens. We're actually going to get to that in one of our segments where we're going to be talking about these gimmick features and what kind of a life do they have, where do they fit in. Yeah, and I definitely think going forward, and even this really has been the case for several years now, Nintendo isn't as much uh, innovating when it turn, uh, when it comes to new IPs. Obviously, you know, the, the old joke, they're just cycling the same four characters around and repackaging and sending them out. But where I do think we are seeing uh, innovation from Nintendo is in the way they present games to us. Firstly, with the Wii and the, the, the various ways you can use a little wand to make a dude run around. And now with the Wii U and the different controller scheme and the dynamic that'll have, hopefully uh, we'll see a couple of interesting features and interesting game concepts come out, out of that. By the way, I would like to credit that comment to JQM78 on N4G. Yep. Next, from Stroke666, a long one, saying, Okay, so I'm not getting how people complain saying the Wii U is priced too high. There is no way Sony or Xbox are going to top or equal that price with their next-gen consoles. And their current-gen consoles start at $500 plus. So to get a brand new system which has better technology at the price of 67 year consoles is a steal. I see a lot of people making these complaints being very disappointed with the prices of their preferred brands next gen pricing. Sony made it very clear last gen that they don't worry about console pricing because their fans will buy their systems regardless. So good luck with that one. Microsoft may make me eat my words but I wouldn't be upset with that because consoles should be affordable. And as a hardcore gamer, the more games I can afford, the better. As for him saying Nintendo should cater to just the casual gamer and not release hardcore games, he's got to be insane. Some gamers will not have a great functionality with the gamepad, but that is up to the developers to use their own creativity. But to simply ignore these gamers would be corporate suicide on Nintendo's behalf. Graphics do not make or break a system. We prove that. Having great games is the key. And now that Nintendo is opening the floodgates, true HD, M-rated, etc., I see nothing but goodness in their future for kids and adults alike. Um, well, in response to that, I'd just like to point out a couple of things. Um, it's $500 plus for a current-gen console, uh, the Xbox and PlayStation, those are not accurate figures. Um, and... I think the point Simon and I were making is that t for that amount of money, you're only getting features that are 
maybe comparable to a six to seven year old device. That's why some people are uh, a little pissed off when it comes to that. And I mean, Simon, you uh, you have some comments to make on on this rather long uh, remark. Yeah, one of my main concerns was with the network externality of Nintendo's new uh, online multiplayer gaming system, right? So network externality is basically this upward spiral reaching a critical mass, if you will, right? Why the, the onus rests with Nintendo, and I said this in the podcast, it rests with Nintendo to prove that they deliver a better experience it can't just be the same if it's the same i'm gonna stick with the xbox you know why because so many all my friends are on it right all my friends are on it we know what's going on and same thing with anybody who's on psn i have many friends who are on psn so why is it going to be better and so far i have no clear and convincing evidence that it's going to be better and that's the thing and then if no one really starts it needs a giant push. You need a lot of people migrating to this platform to cause more people to migrate to this platform. So the few people that might buy it for the hardcore games, uh, they're going to launch Black Ops 2 on their Wii U. They're going to go to multiplayer, and they're going to find very few people, especially in kind of more obscure uh, game modes. You could still find... a a significant audience on the Xbox or PlayStation, but that's because of the sheer volume of people on those networks that you're going to have to find somebody. Yeah, and I have a couple more things to say, but just responding quickly to what you said there, Simon. I remember getting on Xbox Live, I think this might have been a year or two ago. One night I was feeling a little nostalgic, so I popped in Call of Duty 3. And while I know this is a Treyarch game, and uh, a lot of people felt like it wasn't necessarily the best of the World War II Call of Duty games. I'm not sure I do either. But it has a certain nostalgia for me because it was uh, one of the first games I got when I finally got Xbox Live on my 360. So I hopped online, got in a lobby, and lo and behold, this game that was years past its, its release date still had pretty large lobbies, people still playing this game. And that's just something that Xbox already has and that PlayStation Network, that's what they're getting to. But the problem is that Nintendo with their Wii brand has taken so long to really get on the, you know, get on the boat in terms of online multiplayer that they're pretty hopelessly behind, which is what I think you were getting at there, Simon. Without this massive push, it's going to be very hard to kickstart it and catch up, especially when there's such competition in in the Xbox Live service and the PlayStation Network. That's right. And um, another thing that's really important is he talked about the developers needing to take extra effort uh, in order to find some use for the gamepad. Now, if, if it's going to be something that people are going to want to use, they're going to have to spend a lot of time and effort and money on it, and it's just one platform, right? They're so used to doing cross-platform, Xbox, PS3, get it out there. Wii has really fallen off, and I know that the Wii U launch is going to be very aggressive in this respect with Assassin's Creed 3, Black Ops 2, but how long can that momentum remain? How long... We see how vanilla these things can start to get, especially with COD. How long is uh, Activision going to say, all right, we're going to really 
invest any significant extra amount of time into giving you some features to use on the gamepad. I see it getting very samey very fast. Yeah, and uh, I would actually counter uh, uh, his argument that it is on the developers and it's up to them to use their creativity to try and uh, you know, make the different control scheme work with their game. Uh, I would actually respond that it's not actually up to them. It's up to the console designers and the company that's putting out the console to make their platform easy to develop for and easy to use. Well, an example we saw was with the PlayStation 3. Early on, it got a ton of complaints that it was very difficult to design for. And as you saw, that mixed with you know, high prices means it didn't sell as well as Sony might have hoped for. Now, they've changed that a little bit. They've you know, brought in Steam, uh, or sorry, Valve to work with them. And it's been easier to, for them to make games. And so they're doing better. The thing is with Nintendo, as we'll talk about later when we talk about some of these more gimmicky features, when you're trying to do a cross-platform game on, with a control scheme that it wasn't meant for, it ultimately is just distracting and frustrating unless, as you say, Simon, they can come up with something creative. But why is, why is the onus on the developer to come up with something creative when they could just take that time focus on the two other platforms and still make their money. Yeah, and I want to highlight an example of this happening right now. Connect, right? Everything, you know, the better with Connect branding, that's a joke. But essentially what Connect integration means at this point is voice commands. That's all it's devolved into. Only the like super campy family casual games have you up and jump in and moving around. Otherwise, with Mass Effect, with Skyrim, it's just, okay, yeah, you can command your squad or uh, shout uh, enchantments. And, I mean, Simon, there, there's an example of exactly what I was talking about. Connect and developers for Microsoft recognize this, and they sort of now push the voice integration bit, I think, more than the, hey, get up and jump around parts of Connect. And that's just them adapting and making it useful for developers. Because if a tool is useful, if a feature is useful for a developer, they'll be happy to integrate it. They'll think of cool, fun ways to integrate it because it works for them. It allows them to be creative. But if something is a hindrance to them, if it's you know if it's a ball and chain they have to go around with instead of a paintbrush that they can use, they're not going to want it. I want to, I think our final, my final comment on this is going to be his, uh, he mentioned that graphics do not break or make a system. We prove that. That was because the Wii had no hardcore gaming push, right? It was really Call of Duty 3 and just a couple on the front before it tapered off. The latest Super Mario Brothers or Smash, Brawl, what have you, Metroid, Pokemon, that they don't require these are not super graphically intensive games therefore that sort of obviated the need for great graphics and it was really never pressed for it but now with nintendo making such an effort and trying to release on game parity with the 360 and ps3 it's gonna be in focus i have i just have to tell you it's gonna be in focus we get john and dan you know criticizing the xbox right now as it is 
for having graphics that are absolutely shit compared to the high-end PC if you crank those settings up. And the Wii U is equivalent to the 360, and that's their next-gen play. What happens when these next-gen consoles get released, their graphics are equivalent to our current high-end PCs. It's going to be a world of difference, and that's a problem. Yeah, because, Simon, something we see so often in PlayStation, Xbox games, you know, PC as well, these hardcore titles, these, you know, AAA cinematic epic moments, they're all require huge processing power, huge graphical powers from the console in order to present that. And those have those moments have become central to these games. That's something that Nintendo is not going to be able to match step for step. And so unless they do what the original Wii did and regress from hardcore gaming back into their sort of protected fortress of Mario, you know, Zelda, what have you, fanboy games that they can resell over and over again, still turn a profit, but not much of one. Un, you know, that may be their only option at this point, unless they somehow, some way, bump up that graphical capacity to make sure they can stay in step. Right, so I want to thank first, thank Stroke666 for coming out there and really setting his view forward, and maybe he can actually challenge us again on the N4G comments. I'd love to see his response. I'd love to get a discussion going about that. But right now we have a short takes that was late. We did not get to it on the September 28 one. That's from Josh Cowbell, a hallowed reviews editor. And he says, With the PS3's vast virtual and physical library, the increasing number of HD collections, and the price drop of the slim model... I believe Sony will make good on supporting the PS3 for the next several years. Developers won't take full advantage of the next system's hardware until a couple of years into the life cycle anyway, so the multi-platform games should look comparable until 2015. Concerning the Wii U, I don't think I've seen as strong a launch lineup in the history of consoles. Of course, I'm ignoring the fact that half the releases have already hit store shelves for the 360 and PS3. I'll probably wait until Christmas to invest in the deluxe version, seeing as the only true title that interests me right now is Zombie U. I will not be buying the Mass Effect trilogy for the PS3 either. Mass Effect 1's gameplay does not match the quality of the story it tells, and after four playthroughs, witnessing every piece of dialogue that Shepard's first adventure offers, I no longer have the will to take down Saren. However, I still want to see what the Mass Effect DLC contributes to the timeline. Okay, well, uh, the first thing is, I don't believe the Slim Slim, the new one, actually got a price drop, because I saw something on the internet about Sony defending their uh, decision not to do a price cut, because I think it was mostly reduced power consumption and a bigger hard drive and that kind of offset the need for uh, a price drop. But I was actually really, really surprised um, concerning Sony's uh, practice of longevity and their kind of use of the uh, Apple model of just making the previous model cheaper and selling that as your budget version. 
FIFA 13 was released for PS2. I was unbelievably surprised to see that. Yeah, Simon, I uh, went online the other day and actually uh, picked up the game, and I was on Amazon just comparing the price and going through a couple of things, and then I just, you know, going down the row, clicked on PlayStation 2, and I was like, wait, wait, wait a minute, what? They still make that? Like, it, it honestly, it blew my mind that the console that I was playing on at my friend's house when I was a little kid, when I had my original Xbox, they're still developing new games for. So that that was uh, surprising for me. But in, in regards uh, to Josh's comments about developers not taking full advantage of the new system, I'd have to say I agree, um, just because of the fact that when you look at games now, especially on the Xbox, but maybe you'll see this more on the PlayStation 3 in uh, days to come, is multi-disc sets. This is mostly on the Xbox because of the limited space that the traditional DVD format has. But the fact that, say, in Skyrim, Mass Effect 3, these developers are jumping through hoops and developing mostly new systems to compress information, to compress data onto here, uh, or onto the disc, to make it, uh, basically to make it run, I think for the first couple years, maybe not, maybe not two to three years, but definitely for the first little bit, I think developers will be sort of sitting back and just uh, stretching their legs out and uh, just getting used to the, uh, the new form factor. Right, we definitely see the difference between a launch title or some near launch title for the 360, like Call of Duty 2. Compared to something we're seeing now, like Dishonored, like Assassin's Creed 3, you would never, never be able to tell that those two uh, games were designed for the same platform, right? It's. I think that we're not even going to see the peak of the uh, next generation games for some years to come, and that's actually really interesting to see how that pans out. As far as he t- uh, talks about Zombie U, that brings me to another comment I wanted to say, which is... Um, Nintendo is probably going to have to create a lot more first-party IPs. Now, this is in conjunction with Ubisoft, which reminds me sort of like Google's Nexus uh, phone model, where they make a pure Google device, but they do it with a different manufacturer each time for each tablet, for each phone they make. I feel like that's going to be the same thing. It's like, here's this quarter's... uh, first-party, unique, brand-new Nintendo Wii U IP, which takes full advantage and fully integrates the multi, uh, the second screen, the gamepad, when you have all sorts of other samey phones and uh, same samey type games using the gamepad as like a mini-map or a menu. And the more I speak into this, the more I think the analogy fits. You have this vast wilderness of very similar type Android devices all out there. Then you have the Google Nexus phone that stands out. It's stock. It's sponsored by Google. And I think that's the same way Nintendo's going to go. They're going to focus on this one big IP, make sure it really works. And then the rest of these hardcore games, uh, you know, they can just they can just kind of be. And so on to our October 5th 
Stuart Takes, Darth Skeletor, who is ramping up his commenting uh, and contributions significantly. He says, I don't know how excited to be for the Assassin's Creed's alt history. I felt as though they would be better served sticking to the original line. I know for a fact that I would be thrilled to hear and learn about how more historical events fit into the fight between the Assassins and the Templars. Well, I mean, that's, that's, a, good, that's a good point. Uh, to be fair, I'm pretty excited for the DLC, uh, at least that which has been mentioned so far. I think it'll be fun um, and in its own way, kind of goofy, just to sort of screw around with history. But uh, something that uh, was interesting to me when I was reading this comment is somebody at Ubisoft, I think I was reading this maybe a month ago, something like that mentioned a return to Assassin's Creed sort of in a sort of yearly serial way. But at the same time, somebody else mentioned that Assassin's Creed 3 will be the final in the series. So this got my mind wondering that instead of releasing new games, progressing the story, what if Assassin's Creed 3 just got DLC maybe far beyond what would traditionally be its lifespan that just starts going back and filling in these holes? Now, I know a lot of people online have sort of been clamoring for ninjas in Assassin's Creed, so maybe we see a DLC in the Far East at some point in history, or we see pirates. I know that's another one thrown out there because people like to see pirates and ninjas. But I don't know. It, it'll be interesting. And to be completely fair to uh, Ubisoft, as far as I know, Simon, they've only announced the first DLC along with that season pass. And that season pass includes five, right? That's, uh, I believe that's correct. So... It, it, yeah, it'll be interesting. I, however, don't think that they're all going to go off on these random tangents. I think they're all going to fill in uh, the story of, um, was it Connor? Is that his name? I don't know his like Indian name. It's really complicated. But um, I sort of have to agree with Dar Skeletor. I really wish they had more like the Subject 16 content, right? The Subject 16 puzzles, like the really kind of confusing and really you had to think about it in a very different sort of way to understand it or even get there which reminded me of a game I used to play called God Tower which is in a very similar vein uh, to to the Subject 16 puzzles um, you should check it out uh, but I think that the alternative history will also be very interesting um, obviously my opinions were on the short takes, but uh, in terms of having pirates or zombies or uh, ninjas, um, I'm not, I don't know. I think that's just fitting into the tropes of like culture, pop culture references at this point. Yep, so uh, next we have Millennium Master 18 commenting on the October 12th short takes, and uh, he says, if Adam Sandler's production company is anything like he is in his movies, then you know which Bad Company title they're going to adapt. I'm somehow not surprised that Microsoft decided to go south when the tide's moving north. I would say that either its advisors, financial, PR, and whatnot, are seeing something we aren't, 
or its magic ball that predicts the future is defective again. I, re I reckon this decision was made in order to either appeal to their family-friendly consumers or to not upset the balance of the gaming industry with their current power over the market, since physical retailers would surely take a hit if Microsoft were to cut them off by releasing the attractive alternative to physical distribution of mature content. The digital distribution of mature, uh, of mature content. Sorry, there's a repetition there. This alternative is already successful to an extent on a similar market, where... Do you say? Well, in these places, there's loads of only mature content. You catch my drift. In parentheses, the answer is porn sites. Well, fair enough there. And I think the uh, the initial comment in regards to Adam Sandler's uh, was in response to Simon's question of which bad company we would see in the TV show, whether it was the sort of funny, screwy, nutty kind of guys in the first game or the uh, darker turn that Bad Company 2 took and I think it's been confirmed that it would be looking at the funnier lighthearted side of the original Bad Company so you know check one Money Master you are correct and as far as uh, the Microsoft's decision on Windows 8 to not allow digital distribution of mature content part of me thinks that that you're correct there that this is because of deals or negotiations with uh, physical retailers because they definitely would lose a large chunk of their gaming profits there I completely agree with that statement but then the other part of me thinks that it wouldn't be as big a chunk as you might think because even if you're able to download your games to your PC, I mean, we already see people on Steam doing that and it's not necessarily harming Best Buy or whatever whatever your retailer of choice is. So I don't know. It's kind of kind of up in the air. Right, this was in response to Microsoft not putting M Games in, which, upon further reflection and reading his comments, I do understand what could have been some of their motivations. But here's my problem. From a physical standpoint, as a user, as a consumer, if I were to go out and buy the Surface tablet, the Windows 8 Intel version, I know today the RT version, the ARM version, got spec'd out, has an NVIDIA Tegra 3 processor, 2 gigs of RAM, so on and so forth but it can't play any or use any traditional Windows applications. So if I were going to get the more robust, uh, more conventional Intel processor one, where can I get games? I guess I'm stuck with Steam. I think Microsoft gave up a tremendous amount of potential there. Perhaps we're going to see it in an update, but um, as far as launch is concerned... I think that what they really needed to do, what they really needed to do above all else, was placate, appease, um, convince the hardcore and really power user crowd that is, I think, generally our audience, that this was worth it. And that was one solid way. Because if you think about it, we're the ones, the tech blogs are the ones, you know, the really tech enthusiasts are the ones that are all decrying it as basically watered down, a total cop-out, metro, 
sucks, never going to use it, I want my start menu back, all of this, and this just gives them another reason. The problem is, though, Simon, you know, while you say that, that the the tech bloggers and whatnot are the ones who are, you know, really freaking out over this, I think something that we do have to consider is that Microsoft has been and will continue to be a majority business running operating system. Gaming, while incredibly useful, uh, while it's incredibly useful for that purpose, it's obviously uh, ha- has a much longer and more successful history in regards to games than uh, Mac OS X or any of the operating systems for Mac 2. But the thing is, primarily, it's there to run Office. It's there to make spreadsheets and PowerPoints and prepare Word documents. And we've seen a large point, part, a large part of that business community has not moved past XP. They've passed on Vista. They passed on Windows 7. And Microsoft really needs to bring it home, strike gold with Windows 8. They need to bring in these people who just sort of sat back and not upgraded. So his comment where he says maybe this is appealing to a more family-friendly audience, I think maybe this is appealing to a more work-minded office. You know, if you can't get your games on there, you might as well work. Um... I suppose, but um, my my response to that is, and I don't want to go too bit deep into this because this is gaming and not enterprise, but I think Windows 7 is the new Windows XP, right? This really solid, tested, stable build of Windows that is just going to stick around way past when it was originally intended to because people don't want this Metro. Right, IT is probably very afraid of that. They want the stability and presence of the old start menu, and they don't want to retrain a whole bunch of people. In addition, with Windows 8, there may not be mature game integration, but I don't foresee a whole ton of people. I don't foresee playing Fallout New Vegas or Assassin's Creed at work becoming an epidemic. What I do see is playing Angry Birds Star Wars at work, continuing that time-old tradition of playing Minesweeper or Solitaire at work, right? And these are going to be delivered even faster, more conveniently, better graphics onto Windows 8. So from that perspective, I think Windows 8 was even worse a proposition for business. I think Windows 7 is going to be kind of that stalwart. And to be true, we are seeing a much faster ramp-up of Windows 7 and declining Windows XP as a result, not Windows 8. Uh, but, um, you know, fair enough, and I think we'll go ahead and wrap up our, uh, our Windows 8 talk with a comment by Darth Skeletor, who, in response to the same question, asked us, does this mean that you will not be purchasing and using Windows 8? And I actually commented uh, under, uh, under him and responded, but I think Simon and I will just respond now that... I know for myself personally, uh, I'm still going to upgrade. Even though I like gaming on my PC, the sole purpose, and this is sort of you know a little, little bit of insight into what I was talking about before, the sole purpose of my PC 
and the reason I have it and use it is to do work on it. I, you know, write papers and you know PowerPoints and spreadsheets and all that stuff. It's productivity is the main feature of my computer. Now, entertainment is a secondary thing that I love about it, but that's not going to prevent me from upgrading. I love the new features that Windows 8 is going to have. I love the Metro feel of it, probably because I've grown accustomed to it on my phone with with Windows Phone 7. But if I really want to play an M game on my computer, it's not going to be that much trouble for me to go to a physical distributor. Yeah, so I want to respond as well because I know I sounded pretty down on this whole thing just now and in the short takes. Um, I am going to upgrade, and a lot, a lot of it has to do with Microsoft just making it so damn cheap, right? If you bought a PC within, I think, like early June all the way up to February, you can get Windows 8 upgrade for $15. And if you're on any other computer, it's going to be $40. And that's going to be for Windows 8 Pro, the kind of more robust version. So $15. That's pretty much reaching like Apple Mountain Lion upgrade costs, right? Microsoft's really taking a big bet on trying to aggressively price this. And so when I said like, I think I said my short takes, it there goes 98% of my... Um, excitement for Xbox integration in Windows 8. Um, I'm basically saying that it's not that I'm getting a downgrade with Windows 8. It's just that I'm upgrading a lot less than it could have been, right? It's just getting the wind knocked out of the sails a bit. Uh, There's still going to be a lot of features and a lot of things that are going to be improved, and I'm definitely going to uh, enjoy and use those improvements. Um, but there's just going to be some features that could have been there. There was some potential that they could have capitalized on that they didn't. That's that's really all there is to it. So, yes, I will be purchasing Windows 8 because it was only $15 for me. And I think that was, in anybody's mind, a, a real steal. And so, off the Windows 8 talk completely now, we have an email that's responding to a slightly older discussion uh, that was going back to the DRM issue that we were talking about uh, a few podcasts ago. He says, In my mind, this whole DRM discussion boils down to a very simple fact. Piracy is defeated by two things, price and convenience. The market that exists now is the most prohibitive it can possibly be in both those categories. Games start priced very high and are incredibly inconvenient thanks to physical media and or DRM measures. This is why we see efforts being taken on either root cause, such as Steam's aggressive fire sale pricing and Ubisoft's removal of DRM. However, Ubisoft's games still cost too much, and as you guys mentioned, Steam still does have areas of inconvenience. So far, no one company has made a concerted effort to link these two causes together and address them simultaneously. Instead of pricing PC games at $60 and getting almost no revenue for because of a 97% piracy rate, it makes business sense to price it at $30 and have a 60% piracy rate, assuming large and similar volumes, which 
given this example applies to a AAA title, is probably the case. This will also cause consumers to buy the cheaper PC version as compared to the expensive console version, possibly causing a network externality situation where a critical mass is buying and supporting the game. Thank you for the use of that term. I really like it. Um, anyways, uh, this reduced price needs to also be complemented with no DRM measures whatsoever. You should be able to install it and play. No ifs, ands, or buts. If that isn't the case, this strategy will not work. Developers and publishers have to have faith that these two approaches taken together will reduce piracy incidents and increase genuine purchases. What do they have to lose? They're already making no money. Yeah, I mean, fantastic point there, Simon. I think in addition to that, uh, some models that have been thrown around uh, as far as PC gaming goes are you know, selling it cheaper and adding on later on so have a, a first little bit I mean kind of like episodic gaming uh, in a way but just have a base game where you can tack on modules or what have you similar to DLC but I, I think the, uh, the listener makes several excellent points yeah, um, I think that this is a very good analysis of the situation, really breaking it down, trying to figure out, all right, what exactly is causing this and how do we address them? And um, hopefully we see people, uh, developers and publishers, that is, bold enough to maybe try some of these steps. Now, I have to imagine that they've already had consulting firms and Internet experts, technology experts, hired to figure this out well in advance so there's already obviously some reason that they're just not doing it perhaps ubisoft um getting rid of all their piracy features or drm features was a result of something like this so uh we'll see if someone can put these two approaches together as uh the emailer says but um that currently, presently, uh, concludes our uh, community callback segment. As you can see, we're over 40 minutes. That was a ton of user feedback. We're really excited about that. That's exactly what uh, we like to see. So if you want to get in touch with us and be on the podcast, have us address your comments, you can comment below on the post. You can send us an email at game-insight-at-outlook.com. I am... Uh, twitter.com slash WGG underscore SWU. Alex is twitter.com slash WGG underscore RAM. And so we're going to go to our Dixical segment now, our interstitial, where we talk about what games we have played since the last podcast. Alex? Yeah, well, uh, the other week, Simon, you mentioned to me that uh, you were thinking about talking uh, about a couple of things on the Comcast, as you know, we plan these things out ahead of time. And one of those had to do with Borderlands, so it got me thinking. I hadn't played that in a week or two, a little bit. I've been taking uh, some time off and playing Fallout New Vegas, which, by the way, is an excellent game. But I went back to Borderlands and uh, been playing that recently, and I've had a fantastic time. All right. Sounds good, and on my front, I have 
now resumed my Fallout New Vegas playthrough. It's going very slowly, though, as I run back and forth across um, the wasteland trying to do side quests. But I have also... I have not yet bought into FIFA 13 yet. I'm waiting for, like, a Black Friday price drop or something like that. But to, to tie me over for now, I am playing FIFA 12, which... I have lovingly and painstakingly updated every single roster. Oh, well, that is commitment there. And that's actually something I surprisingly forgot to mention, seeing as it's probably one of my favorite game series ever, is uh, I did actually pick up FIFA 13. Uh, I was going to try and hold out uh, until Christmas when I could take some time off and really sit down and enjoy it, but my... uh, my my willpower was not strong enough. I couldn't overcome the urge, and I uh, got it, and I've been having a very good time simulating season after season ever since. By the way, I think I should mention that um, it, we're going to get this, to this later in our Game Minder segment and briefly discuss this, but we are about to get hit with a lot of very good games. Unfortunately, I don't have the time or the money to buy really any of them right now so uh on our dixical segments it's going to continue to be pretty low-key even as we see things like assassin's creed 3 and halo 4 and black ops 2 uh all roll out yeah and on top of simon's issues i am without an xbox or a playstation for the next couple of months unfortunately so uh i would not be able to be playing those games so i will be lovingly going back to my Steam library over and over again. Right, but for now, we are going to talk about Ebert's Wager. Now, that's not kind of, that may sound kind of misleading or confusing, but um, I'm just doing it as a reference to Roger Ebert saying that video games can never be art. But we're going to talk about art in video games, art styles to be precise. Now, in the last year, and especially the last few months, we've begun seeing a significant amount of games uh, issue or forego the traditional uh, trudge towards yet more realism, and instead they opt for very unique and creative art styles. So, some examples of this are Darkness 2, Borderlands 2, Dishonored, the new Batman games like Arkham Asylum and Arkham City, and these are all games that are receiving very high marks. They're not flops by any you know, measure of the imagination. They're, many of them can be considered AAA titles. I know I have a very favorable look on them. I know Dan and John have a very favorable review of these as well. And so what is fueling the rise in art styles like cell shading? Is it the peak and stagnation in console technology? Right. Do developers see the gulf widening too far in games like Mass Effect or let's use the uh, ultimate example, Crisis, right? And they see the need that they need to smooth over the gap with something that's slightly less discernible, something that it's harder to tell. It's less immediately obvious how disparate the graphics are between the PC and the console. Or is it possibly because video games are really beginning to enter the mainstream consciousness 
And that's allowed for a lot more artistic expression to come through. And so it's starting to displace, to a certain extent, the much more technically focused designers. So we have concept artists now taking lead creative design and not just someone who sits in front of a computer, you know, with CAD software packing as many polygons into textures as you can. Or it could be, as we're about to see in some cases, uh, an effective differentiator, because if there are so many ultra-realistic games, then striking away from that is a definite way to grab attention very fast. But, and this is one of my biggest questions, is are more games going to attempt to shift away from realism when the new consoles are released and they bring more obvious uh, parody, I like that term as well, uh, much closer to PCs or on par with our current high-end PCs? What happens then when realism is about at the same level there's no real need to cover over anything. So, is it the distinctive art style that is a significant differentiator? Is that going to have more staying power? And um, Alex, I'm going to ask, because he has been playing Borderlands, and uh, I believe was also a fan of the Batman games. So, what is your take on how the art style affects these games or factors into it? technically and stylistically. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I will say that I was you know, a massive fan of uh, Arkham Asylum. I played that through on the console, and it was, it was you know, it was sort of a, a different look at, you know, Batman, obviously, but also at, at games. It just, you know, it looked a little different. But where that looked just a little different, then we have Borderlands, which was far, far more different than... Uh, other games at the time. I mean, when, when you consider that this game came out just after Fallout 3, um, you know, it was in that same time as that very gritty, realistic, futuristic shooter. But instead, it is almost cartoony because I, I sat down to play it, as I mentioned before, for the first time in a little while. And when I first booted it up, I uh, looked at the screen and was kind of confused because I was having trouble making things out and it was sort of distracting and I was like, what's going on? But less than 10 seconds later, you know, it was almost, you know, snap my fingers and then all of a sudden everything just sort of settled down. I'm like, ah, okay, I know, I know what's going on. And it was in a way almost more comforting at that point because when I looked around and I thought about it, the, the best comparison I can make is that Borderlands, to me, looks like I'm walking through a comic book because everything is shaded in. It's got you know very hard, bold black lines around everything's border. You know, maybe there's a little a pun there in the title, you know, adding more layers of significance there. But I just I thought that it changed it up and made it, I don't know, maybe more fun to play in that way. I mean, I was playing on a PC, so there was no need to sort of paper over any uh, graphical inequalities. But I still think it added in a unique dimension that changed it up and uh, separated it from Fallout, uh, per se. Right, so and I want to provide an example of the art style being reduced 
and I would point to Minecraft, right? Now, I think there are a lot of people who are really Minecraft enthusiasts. They may disagree with me uh, to what extent the art style is reduced or whether it is or whether it isn't. But on the PC, there are extensive texture mods and content packs that have really smoothed out that what we regard as the famous kind of 8-bit in interface and uh, look and increase the detail on every item. So it actually looks relatively good. I've seen uh, a couple of my friends, my brother plays uh, Minecraft as well, and he uses these texture packs. It looks like a completely different game. It looks, I know it's not like perfectly realistic, but it looks a lot more in that direction. And so this stands out in stark contrast to the vanilla version that we see on the Xbox, which is really what the defining feature of Minecraft was when it started. Right? And so... We're going to transition away from that and really discuss in detail kind of case studies from each of these games and what their motivations are and if we can't discern anything from that, right? So we're going to start with Borderlands. And the thing of it was, Borderlands started off as a samey, gritty, dark, realistic, sci-fi, space, first-person shooter. That was the way it was originally introduced and marketed at conventions and conferences like GDC and E3. And it was very famous for having this 11th hour, like close to midnight, close to launch, last minute style overhaul that saw realism completely switched up for this cartoonish cell shading that Alex has been talking about. Um, because Fallout 3 had just came, come out. Uh, this was in October 2008, and Gearbox felt that if they did the exact same thing, because that was currently what they had planned in the pipeline, it was going to be just a clone, or that people were going to think it was just a clone or a follower or a Me Too kind of game. Gearbox didn't have any money or time to start over a la Duke Nukem 3D Realm style, which I want to point out is, I think, sort of ironic, considering they're the company that picked up the pieces of Duke Nukem, finally rolled out Duke Nukem Forever to completely meh reviews. Uh, but I digress. So the, the directors flipped through the concept art, right? And as they were doing that, they realized, wait, this would actually work. And they had this idea, which they called the purple cow concept. And the way that went is you're, you're driving in France, right? Pristine, beautiful countryside, and you see cows. You see tons of cows grazing in pastures off to the side in fences, farmhouses. And then there's a purple cow. What? That's going to stick with you. That's going to be different. That's going to be bizarrely, wildly different. It's going to really stand out and... No matter how hard you try, when you go back and remember that time, all you're going to think of is the purple cow. And so that's essentially what they equated having this art style with as. And the graphical switch was complemented uh, by gameplay mechanics change that saw the ultra-real and hyper-complex skill tree and ability design completely trashed, tossed away. Instead, they came up with more funny and creative ideas like the healing bullets and some of the funnier cultural reference quests and the like, right? 
So bullets that heal, I know a quest in Borderlands 2 is that you've got to set these volleyball players' nets on fire. I'm pretty sure reference to Top Gun. Things like that that just make it tongue-in-cheek. Um, and so in a large part, this art switch turned Borderlands from what would have been a completely Me Too game into something totally different. And that arguably saved the project entirely and directly created the market for the viable sequel, which is now opening, I think, we see to great reviews. But I think ultimately what it is is it's good to keep in mind that um, this was not some kind of grand, masterfully executed artistic vision, right? Gearbox did not lay out this elaborate plan for this radically different art style it was going to it was actually last minute desperation that somehow they came up with it they stumbled upon it and so uh that was the reason borderlands ended up the way it did but darkness 2 and the batman series have unique art styles for very different reasons which is that they have their basis in a completely different form of media and that is comic books yeah i mean Director uh, of Darkness 2, Seth Olsynk. Simon, you know I'm terrible with names, but he said as much when he said, there's a lot of realistic games out there right now. We took this moment with the Darkness 2 to ask ourselves, okay, we can make it look more real. Is that what we want to do? Is that what will help us tell our story? Is that what will help our gameplay? And in thinking about it, it kind of wasn't. He then goes on to say that, it was based on the comics, and it was about something that was larger than life. So in order to express something that's larger than life, they were trying to be more lifelike was inherently against the concept. It would be a bad idea to try and be realistic when it's not a realist thing. So here we're just presented with several different reasons for going with a very unique art style and each one of these games has been very successful I think in no small part because of it and so um, we're going to take a small side tangent here and kind of pose a what if question and analyze if we can what would have happened to Gearbox or what would have happened in general if Gearbox simply decided that switching up the art style at that point was simply infeasible, right? And it was a very realistic possibility uh, that they didn't. It was risky and contentious, and a lot of the people didn't like that decision one bit. The art director was so infuriated by this that she quit the game industry entirely. Didn't just quit Borderlands Project. Didn't just quit Gearbox. Quit the game industry. I... Holy. So, if Gearbox released Borderlands, here's Borderlands on the shelf now at Best Buy, GameStop, online at Amazon. It's an ultra-realistic, gritty, brown, post-apocalyptic RPS with a very complex skill tree. Now what? Right? And uh, I think there are instant comparisons to Fallout 3 again. Now depending on how much the pol- uh, the product would have progressed down that tree, they could have put some final polish on that and made it uh, touch it up a little better and made it respectably compete <clears throat> Excuse me, with Fallout 3. But Fallout 3 has a 
very good inventory and skills management system. And especially, I think Alex, you'll agree with me on this one, has a very rigorously means-tested system through the Elder Scrolls series, right? Fallout 3 was the first real first-person role-playing game. And they, but that isn't to say that Bethesda didn't have any experience with it. They've had for quite some time all these Elder Scrolls series. So Fallout 3 wasn't very far of a reach. It was just a different painting. So I think that Gearbox would have taken their first steps into this area, getting mediocre ratings. By that time, they're already committed to doing this kind of ultra-realistic style for any potential sequel if they've even decided to make it, right? The, the reviews might be such that they decide to stay away from it entirely. That, coupled with a tremendous failure in Duke Nukem, would have given Gearbox two flops, might have even put the company in jeopardy, because Borderlands' success really allowed them to replenish their reserves. So, all in all, what we have here with Borderlands is a totally accidental success. But I think, Alex, if you have any final comments, I think that we can all safely say that we're all better off for it. Yeah, I think something that you and I especially, but I think the games review, game journalists, whatever you want to call this uh, little corner of the internet, I think something we've all been pining for for a very long time is original content, new ideas, innovation, new IPs, all this stuff. We just want new, better, etc. And I think this is a very interesting and a very good way to provide that. Now, some people might say, oh, well, it's, you know, you change the paint, but at the end of the day, it's still just a, a shooter and collection game. But I think the, the change of paint, the change of scenery, changing how you look at it, I think that's just as important as coming up with a new location or a new idea for a uh, fantasy series. I think, you know, innovation in any form should be welcomed with open arms because it's something that we're desperately, desperately in need of. Yeah, and so now we're going to move on from that and talk briefly about Game Minder before we go to our next full segment. And so we are going we're really starting to see the fall release season kick into full gear. I know we've been saying that for so long now. We've been saying we're waiting for it for so long now. But uh this week is just the beginning next um next podcast I think we're gonna be saying dropping even more huge names of games that we're definitely looking forward to playing. Um as for this week, though, we have, starting us off, uh, Assassin's Creed 3. Obviously, huge one. Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. Nullo areale, tutto è lecito. Requiescat in pace. So, it's going to be out on Tuesday, October 30th for PS3 and Xbox. Obviously, Wii U going to follow at a later date on launch date. I believe that's November 18th, if memory serves me correctly. We also have Medal of Honor Warfighter for PC, PS3, and Xbox 360. 
um, I'm interested in seeing how this reboot really does. I don't think that the reception to the first Medal of Honor was necessarily indicative of where they ultimately plan on this going, whether it's truly a COD clone, Battlefield clone, um, I think will be put to the test this time. I look forward to getting my free gun. Yeah, that actually is a very valid comment. This It's been marred by a ton of really controversial um, promotions and things surrounding it, whether it's the Zero Dark Thirty, which is the Osama Bin Laden mission included, or whether they had cross-promotions with gun stores to buy these guns that you had in the game. Um, but I don't think that should necessarily impact the actual performance of the game itself and so we'll see how that pans out um this one's a little interesting to me uh need for speed most wanted uh which is a reboot now i actually played the original need for speed most wanted uh it was all right and so i'm I'm curious to see what what happens now yeah and actually uh i'd just like to say that i actually i also had that game had it for the original xbox and Simon, I know you're a, a big fan of more traditional racing games, just sort of going around the, the track in best time, but that's never quite been my cup of tea. But everything changed for me, at least, when I played Need for Speed Most Wanted. There was something about the added dynamic of having to run pell-mell full speed from a chasing cop car or being able to be in that cop car chasing someone who's speeding away that just added a, an extra level that that's what really did it for me and to this day that the original is one of my favorite racing games ever so hopefully uh this reboot is true to the spirit of it while at the same time improving and uh i look forward to giving it a, uh, a test drive at some point right so this one's going to be out on a ton of things xbox ps3 um PC, but also Android, iOS, PS Vita, and get this, the Wii U. So there we go. What is it going to be? What's that second screen going to be? Is it going to be a mini map and your speedometer and your gauges? Uh, We'll find out, I guess. Coming out uh, a little before that on October 23rd, exactly a week before, is Simon, I know a game you're looking forward to a lot. Forza Horizon, which will be uh, an Xbox exclusive. Yeah, now, you you talked about me being a fan of very um, traditional racing games, right? Laps, and you're in a car. Uh, This one's a little bit different. So, it's Horizon, which is the racing festival, uh, and the car festival that takes place out in, I believe, Colorado. So, Dan and John, if you're out there, right? Um, And it's a sponsor with that talking about um basically you're participating in it as a racer and so it's open world and there's a ton of different races and types of um events that you can enter all sorts of things like that i mean i know the first thing i did was uh there's this long opening video and then suddenly i was racing someone to the event then i was competing against a plane on a course to see who could finish faster right well and i was doing a four by four race with a pickup truck so immediately tons of variety absolutely gorgeous 
visuals. I cannot stress that enough. In the car viewer and out there, I think they chose this in Colorado because of the absolutely amazing draw distance and visuals that you see, but unbelievable looking game. And Sam, I'm assuming all of those experiences you're talking about, you played a demo for it. Yes, there. Yeah, there's a there's a demo uh, out for it right now. So um, definitely check that out. And as always, it is Forza, so it is an Xbox exclusive, October 23rd. Yeah, I think this goes back to maybe the, the second Comcast, I can't quite remember, where we talk about the uh, pervasiveness of sandbox gaming. So I think it's definitely uh, an interesting concept of a, an open-world racing game. But coming up a week later, same day as Need for Speed, is LEGO Lord of the Rings, the video game. So... That is going to be coming out for 3DS, PC, PlayStation, and Xbox. So that'll be interesting because of the fact that it's going to be the first LEGO video game that will be fully voiced. Yeah. All right. And I think our final one is going to be for a little nod to PS3 fans out there. It's the Killzone Trilogy. And so that's going to be all three of the Killzone games on PS3, and that is going to be out on Tuesday, October 23rd as well. And so, that's going to be it for Game Minder segment, and we're going to now move on to our second and final topic for today. Alex? Yeah, so, Sam, you were talking before about art styles and how that can sort of change things around However, a lot of people just look at art styles and sort of cast it off, say, you know, that's just that's a gimmick feature. It's a gimmick thing. It's not really anything worthwhile or adding anything in. And I was I was thinking about this when I was sitting down to write and I was wondering, can gimmick features, these sort of outside of the norm things, be a real defining feature in gaming? And I mean we saw with the release of the Wii that technically it's a feasible idea. The Wii had the added benefit of having a low entry price with a relatively unique way to game when it came out. But that's not the only example. We saw even before the Wii, Guitar Hero and then later on Rock Band showed that a gimmicky feature, you know, having plastic guitars in your living room could really sell a title. And when I was thinking about this, I was sitting down and wondering, what exactly was it that made these so successful, that made these so fun? And the result I came to is that these gimmick features work so well because they give someone the illusion for Guitar Hero that you're a famous guitarist or for Rock Band you're a crazy good drummer. And that makes it fun and adds the immersive nature of it. It's because ultimately that is what the success of these gimmick features boils down to. The fact that they're able to immerse the player in good experience in a way that would be otherwise impossible with a different controller scheme, that's what's fantastic about them. Yeah, I'd also like to add that that's a very good analysis of the single-player component, right? You're able to have these things that allow you to feel like you're more into the action uh, than you might necessarily be with a gamepad. And especially from a multiplayer perspective, right, it's fun because you've got all your friends, you're being loud, you're jumping around, you're waving things around. It's really funny to watch them um, totally mess up on this or just like 
flop or fall um, or just generally act really goofy. And, you know, that's why we as just the party console, the, par- the console that you bring out and everyone waves around the Wiimote during a party because it's fun, it's social, it's a way to bond. Um, and so that's another aspect to the gimmick feature. And same thing with Guitar Hero, right? Yeah. Well, because the, the fantastic thing about them, Simon, as you say, is that there's no learning curve. You say you just bring it out at a party, and you could honestly, having never played the Wii before, you could pick up the Wiimote and just go because they're easy to use. I mean, the guitar, the guitar controller looks like a guitar. The drum set looks like a drum set. And I mean, the, the Wiimote's little wand, that resembles any number of tools that you can use in a game. You have the handle of a tennis racket, the handle of a baseball bat, the handle of a golf club. Anything that has a handle, well, there you go, right there. That's something that game designers, as well as accessory makers, if you remember every single one of those little plastic add-ons, they were really able to capitalize when it came to the Wiimote. However, in each one of these cases that we've mentioned, this is a pretty niche purpose. None of these games we're talking about are any sort of traditional or you know, quote-unquote hardcore games. They're sort of in the, the fringe area of music games or fringe area of social games. I mean, you weren't using your Wii to play Call of Duty. In most cases, you either have a PC or an Xbox or a PlayStation for that. Your plastic guitar was only useful if you're playing the the latest rock guitar band hero, World Express Tour, Aerosmith, Beatles edition, or you know whatever it is, is only useful with that sort of fringe market. And ultimately, this is the problem with a gimmick feature. It's a it's a gimmick. Motion control, 3D gaming, these specialized controllers, they're all great products in a certain context, and they can work very well for those certain things. Yet, they're on a very specialized territory because when you try to apply them anywhere else, they're lost. Like, you can't use them in different contexts. You can't use a guitar to shoot somebody in, you know, Call of Duty 3. Though that actually sounds like a pretty awesome yet strangely Jack Black-esque idea for a game. And when you try and force that, especially this is something we saw a lot with the Wii, when you try and force the game to use your unique and funky design scheme, the control format, the unique feature that you have, it loses the one quality that makes it potentially better. And that is its immersive simplicity. Because when you try and play a traditional game on the Wii, you know, you think of, you know, any of your AAA action adventure shooter kind of titles. When you try and play that on the Wii, the hoops that developers have had to jump through in making that game and making it work with the Wii's control system makes it, in a word, distracting. In several words, it's frustrating, mind numbing, and painful. Yeah. I'd also like to add that I have recently been participating in late-night brawl sessions on the Wii with a couple of friends, and essentially, whenever hand- someone is finished with a round and hands me the Wiimote with the connected nunchuck controller, I, I just have to say, uh, no thanks. I'll just wait until someone is done with the GameCube controller, right? Because in brawl, there's no... Uh, it's not... Uh, 
designed to use the Wii motion. There's nothing like that. It's all uh, straight up controls, right? Left, right, jump, punch, kick, etc. And the way that it's arranged on the controller, it might actually give my thumb damage from moving up, down, and around. And it just feels very forced and strange. And I think that's why we're seeing um, Nintendo, in an effort to uh, rectify this and kind of prevent what we're talking about from happening on the Wii U, we have the Wii U Pro Controller, which literally looks like someone did a bad copy-paste Photoshop job on an Xbox controller. And we're told it feels cheap, plasticky, and less compelling. Yet, when it comes down to it, for Call of Duty or Assassin's Creed, might actually be critical because you need that response time, you need those uh, controls very close together and in an alignment you're used to, not this giant uh, heavy kind of pad, right? So that's just one example, right? Where's my C-stick on the the Wiimote? I don't have it. I can't perform uh, clearing moves easily in Brawl. And so that's just one example I wanted to bring in of the Wiimote making things harder for games that don't use the motion functions. Yeah, just to use another example, you can look at, at 3D TVs and, by extension, 3D gaming. Something about that, if you're, if you're sitting there and watching a particularly cinematic cutscene in a game or watching things go by, that can be immersive. If it makes you feel like you're there in the moment, then it is doing its job and it is a good thing. However, the problem is when you're playing a more traditional game, those generally have lots of movement, lots of action, lots of things going on. And when you try and make those things jump out at you, go flying past your head, and have to change directions in their 3D as you jerk your thumb around, that's when you start to get headaches. That's when it becomes distracting and unimmersive. It just, once again, is frustrating. So, unfortunately, the only thing we can do is just say gimmicks are gimmicks. They can't ultimately be anything more than that. They can't be a defining feature in games. Because pretty eye candy and back-of-the-box write-ups are nice, but they're not compelling in the same way that new gameplay features are. You look at these universal gimmicks like the Wiimote or Kinect or this new gamepad that the Wii U will have, and all it does is it just adds extra pressure to developers and settles them with the need to come up with some new, interesting, fresh, creative way to harness what they've been given. And honestly, it's usually... uh, less than stellar attempts because it usually seems like it comes off as a bit of an afterthought. Yeah, so if there aren't any closing thoughts... Oh, yes? Well, I'd just like to say, before we close, just like to remind everybody that we'd love to get your comments. Comment below, either on uh, N4G or, as always, on Wikigame Guides. Also, Simon and I's Twitter handles are WGG underscore SWU and WGG underscore RAM. So we love getting tweets, we love interacting, and all that. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. Just search Game Insight Comcast, 
and should pop up there. And I think, Simon, we're now on Zoom Marketplace. Is that correct? Yes, um, we are also on Zoom Marketplace for whatever it is worth. I'm pretty sure that in our short takes we're going to mention something about Xbox Music, which is coming out uh, today, I believe, for the 360, which is going to once and for all uh, kill off Zoom and replace it with a much better uh, brand, at least in terms of perception. Okay, so correction, we're now on Xbox Music Marketplace. Yeah, that's right. Um, For some people, right? If you're sub- somehow subscribing to us on a console, then that's how you're going to get to us. But uh, Xbox Music, I think, is really quickly, I know this is complete digression and better served for the short takes, but it's a Spotify music service, music streaming service, as well as fulfilling the old Zune Pass, which was unlimited music. You get to keep some at each uh, the end of every month for a subscription fee. That is going to be launching for Xbox like soon, as in probably right now, and on October 26th for Windows 8, because that's when Windows 8 launches, and October 29th for Windows Phone 8. So you can find us there. And um, otherwise, I'm pretty sure that is it. Thank you for listening to the 15th Wiki Game Guides Comcast. Thanks so much, guys. The world will always welcome lovers as time 